ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so continuing then with kashf ash-shubuhat the removal of the doubts that we began last time into the opening section of the book where we had read bismillahir rahmanir rahim i'lam rahimakallah anna at-tawhid huwa ifradullah bil-ibadah سبحانه وتعالى أن التوحيد هو إفراد الله سبحانه وتعالى بالعبادة وهو دين الرسل الذي أرسلهم الله به إلى عباده فأولهم نوح عليه السلام أرسله الله إلى قومه لما غلوا في الصالحين وَدًّا وَسُوَاعًا وَيَغُوثَ وَيَعُوقَ وَنَصْرًا وَآخِرُ الرُّسُلِ مُحَمَّدٌ صلى الله عليه وسلم وهو الذي كسر صور هؤلاء الصالحين أرسله الله إلى أناس يتعبدون ويحجون ويتصدقون ويذكرون الله Last week then we covered the section at the beginning regarding the basmala and also the opening section where the shaykh made dua for the readers, for the students and mentioned that tawheed is to single out Allah with worship. We highlighted last time that actually tawheed is of three categories, three different aspects of tawheed there was the aspect known as Ar-Rububiyyah. That is the Lordship of Allah. That Allah is singled out in regards to His actions. His actions like the creation of the heavens and the earth, like giving life and death, sending the provisions, controlling the universe, decreeing all of the affairs, that's the rububiyyah of Allah. Singling out Allah, He alone does all of that. Nobody else participates with Him. Then there was also al-uluhiyyah. Singling out Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with our actions. The tawheed of worship. That we single out Allah with all of our ibadah. Our prayer, zakat, hajj, fasting, everything we do, all of our actions from the heart, from the tongue, upon the tongue, upon the limbs, all of it singled out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And then there was the third category which was Tawheedul Asma'i wa Sifat, the Tawheed regarding the names and attributes of Allah, to single out Allah in terms of His beautiful and perfect names and attributes. Those three categories of Tawheed are mentioned and they are all derived from the Qur'an itself. If a person was to say to you, how do you know that Tawheed is those three categories. Where have you got this from? That Tawheed is three categories. The Tawheed of the Lordship of Allah, the Tawheed of the worship to Allah, and the Tawheed regarding His beautiful names and attributes. If somebody said, give me your proof, that Tawheed is these three categories, they say, I can't find a single hadith where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned those three categories to us. So then what do we say to them? Many hands. 
One, two, three. Who knows the answer to that? How do you explain to someone if they challenge you? Where is this Tawheed from these categories of yours? Anyone else? Yourself? From the Quran, what do you mean? Give some more detail. From the words of Allah, that is the Quran. You're on the right lines. All of this Tawheed, it is derived directly from what we've seen in the Quran. At-Tatabu' wal-Istiqra' it's known as. The scholars tatabba'u wastaqra'u that they followed up and checked up on all of the Quran and they read up on all of it and examined it and analyzed it at-tatabbu' wal-istiqra' and through that analysis they discovered that Tawheed when it's mentioned in the Quran it never goes outside of one of those three types they discovered through analysis of the Qur'an that Tawheed, whenever it's mentioned in the Qur'an, it never goes outside of those three aspects of Tawheed. So where is it from? It's from the Qur'an. But then where? Give examples to prove your point. So who can give examples to prove the point? We need a better example than that? No, we need general examples. Examples of chapters or sections of the Qur'an that highlight all three categories. Not just ayat highlighting one particular category. Ayat al-Kursi, you're right, but there's even easier examples. All right, but they're specific. So, uh huh. But there's something easier. I remember once we gave a very easy answer. If somebody says to you, "What is your evidence that the categories of Tawheed are these three? You say because the scholars analyzed and studied and checked in the Quran and Tawheed when it's mentioned in the Quran never goes outside of those three. They say, okay, give us examples then. So you say, the easiest way to remember examples in the Quran where all three types of Tawheed are mentioned is the Mus'haf, the beginning of it and the end of it. The beginning of the Mus'haf, when you open it up, what's there? Al-Fatiha. The end of it, what's there? Those two chapters of the Qur'an, within them, all three categories of Tawheed. Begin with Al-Fatiha. Al-Fatiha, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Within that you have an example of Al-Rububiyyah. From the names and attributes of Allah, Al-Rabb, the Sifa. The attribute that is taken from that is Ar-Rububiyyah. That could be an example of it. And then Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. An example of names and attributes of Allah. Maliki Yawmiddin. Also names and attributes again you could say. Iyaka na'abudu wa iyaka nasta'een. Al-Uluhiyyah, you alone we worship, you alone we seek aid and assistance from. So in Al-Fatiha, you have all of the aspects of Tawheed. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, the Rabb of all of that which exists, the Creator, the Provider, the Sustainer of all of that which exists. Rabbil Alameen, Rububiyyah. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, names and attributes, Maliki Yawmiddin similarly, and then Iyaka na'abudu wa Iyaka nasta'een, Al-Uluhiyya, 
singling out Allah with our worship. Then the other easy example, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ Say that I seek refuge in the Lord of mankind. That's an example of Arububiyah. Rububiyah. Qul a'udhu bi rabbin nas. The Rabb of all of the people, the one who created them, provided for them, gives life and death. Rububiyah. Rabbin nas. And then, nobody memorized it. <laughs> then, Malikin nas, which means. The king or the, the owner, what, what is that then in the categories? Names and attributes, you can mention the meaning, you're right. But the name, it's a name from the names and attributes of Allah. And then, ilahin nas, the one worshipped by mankind. So that's an example of al-uluhiyyah. So you see, the three categories of tawheed, they aren't something which has been invented by the people because the innovators, the people of innovation, of misguidance, they try to claim that the Salafis and these individuals have made up these categories themselves. They never existed at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. He never mentioned them in a hadith. They aren't mentioned like that in the Qur'an. So they say this never existed at the beginning. Afterwards, you guys made it up. We say no. Examination of the Quran, analysis of the Quran, has shown that what, whenever Tawheed is mentioned in the Quran, it is always something to do with one of these three aspects. Evidence, Al-Fatiha, you can show him the three aspects in there. And, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ The chapter at the end, Surah An-Nas, you can show him the three aspects in there. And then there are multiple examples throughout the Qur'an. But two easy examples, beginning and end, where all three categories of Tawheed are mentioned. As for this claim of theirs, that these categories of Tawheed were unknown, to the early generations. They were unknown to the early generations, they claim. And only afterwards, they were invented. Some of them say Ibn al-Qayyim invented these terms. And some of them Ibn Taymiyyah, and some of them even Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. They say these terms and these things were just invented by your scholars afterwards. We say no. The scholars from the time of the Salaf, in those early generations, we're using these terms. Al-Rububiyyah, Al-Uluhiyyah, Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat. These categories of Tawheed were being spoken about by the scholars from the early generations. From the earliest of them, an example of something very early, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, he spoke about some of these categories of Tawheed and he was born at the time when companions were still alive. And Imam Abu Hanifa, born in 80 Hijri, there were still companions alive in other areas of the lands in those days. He mentioned, as an example, لَيْسَ مِنْ وَصْفِ الْأُولُهِيَّةِ أَنْ الْأَسْفَلِ It is not from the characteristics of the uluhiyyah of Allah, that you make dua to Him from downwards, rather you make dua to Allah above. So the point being, the word al-uluhiyyah, and that's just one example. Other scholars from those early centuries, in their writings mentioned al-uluhiyyah, al-rububiyyah, al-asma'u wa-sifat. So this is something established. Something known, something established. An example sometimes we used to mention before is like when you write a letter in English, you remember in GCSE, when they teach you how to write a letter. 
So they say a basic letter, you have your opening paragraph, which is basically like your introduction into your letter, your greetings and introduction into your letter. Then you have the main section in the middle, the main body, which is the, the core of what your letter is about, what your issue is, what you want to talk about. And then you have at the bottom of your letter, the final paragraph, which is your conclusions and what you want to do now, what you want to happen now, some conclusion at the end. Your basic build-up of a letter, your intro, your main body, and your conclusion. That's how you formulate a letter. But when you write a letter, you want to write to some company now, you want to write to somewhere, you're not going to write in your letter at the beginning brackets introduction, and then write your introduction. Then you're not going to write in the next part main body, and then write what your main issue is. And then you're not going to write at the bottom in brackets conclusion, and then write what it is and send it like that, are you? You don't write those titles in. You don't write those titles in. But when you examine a letter and you see those three paragraphs and they teach you in English, they say, okay, as a question on the exams, identify and break down how this letter works. So you say, okay, this opening paragraph where he talks about X, Y, and Z, that's his introduction. And from that point to this point of the discussion, from his words X, Y, and Z to his word X, Y, and Z, that's the main body. And this final section is the conclusion. You've identified those three parts to the letter. Was that ever written in the actual letter? This is my introduction, X, Y, and Z. This is now my main body of the letter. Was it ever there? But through analysis of the letter, you can see it does not exit from that structure. That's what it's there. That's how it is. Just as a general example to understand. You can't use the argument of saying, but it doesn't say in the Qur'an, this ayah is now about rububiyyah, and this ayah is now about uluhiyyah. doesn't say that in the Qur'an. But when you analyze and you inspect and you investigate, then it becomes clear, as we've just given those examples from al-Fatiha and from al-Nas, that this is talking about a rububiyyah, and this ayah is about al-uluhiyyah, and this ayah is about the names and attributes of Allah, and you go through the whole Qur'an and you discover that all of the Qur'an, the Tawheed mentioned within it, falls into those aspects. Three basic aspects that are mentioned by the scholars. Al-Rububiyyah, Al-Uluhiyyah, and Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat. There is, as we mentioned I think last time, alternative ways of describing those three categories in some of the books you will find that the scholars they say there are only two categories of tawheed in some of the books especially the books of the salaf and the older books you will see the scholars saying that there are only two categories of tawheed so which two categories are they hands up Nobody from the peripheries. Ah. Which two categories when they say Tawheed is only two categories? So they miss out on Asma' wa Sifat? Which one? You will say Rububiya, final answer. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So some of the scholars, they say al-asma'u wa-sifat and al-rububiyyah are both one category. And it can sometimes be called tawheed al-ilmi, the tawheed of knowledge. And the other one, al-uluhiyyah, they call it tawheed al-amali, the tawheed of action. So sometimes they categorize it as the Tawheed of Knowledge, which is Rububiyyah and the names and attributes, and the Tawheed of Action, which is Al-Uluhiyyah. Why is Al-Rububiyyah and Al-Asma'u Wa-Sifat categorized as the Tawheed of Knowledge? Because the requirement from the servant of Allah in regards to Al-Rububiyyah 
and in regards to the names and attributes is to have knowledge regarding those affairs, to have knowledge that Allah alone is the creator, the provider, the sustainer, the one who gives life and death, to have knowledge of the beautiful and perfect and elevated names and attributes of Allah, knowledge is the requirement on those. Whereas with Al-Uluhiyyah, it's known as the Tawheed of action, because what's required of you? Action. What is required of you is to worship Allah alone, singling out all of your worship to Allah alone. Your actions, your deeds, your obedience must now be done, singled out purely to Allah alone. So what is required of you in Al-Uluhiyyah is to do your action upon oneness to Allah, uniquely to Allah, upon Tawheed to Allah. So in some of the books of the scholars, you may see that they describe Tawheed as two categories only. Tawheed of knowledge and Tawheed of action. Tawheed, Tawheed al-ilmi and Tawheed al-amali. And with the ilmi, it covers al-rububiyyah and al-asma'u wa-sifat. And the other one covers al-ilmi, al-amali covers al-uluhiyyah. There are other titles too. There are other titles they may use too. But the point is, it will be a two-fold classification. And here you have a three-fold classification. But both of them are the same thing. Because in the two-fold classification, you are just putting two of the categories into one and the other one by itself. So you still got all three aspects in there. You've still got all three aspects in there. It's just that two of them are put together in a category and the other one in a category. In the threefold, it's just each independently as a category. So it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing when it comes to the explanation of it. So then we mentioned why a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab selected his definition for Tawheed to be the definition of Al-Uluhiyyah. Why? Because the whole book is in refutation of individuals who are casting doubt upon aspects of Al-Uluhiyyah, claiming you can call upon others, you can seek intercession from the dead, you can do this, you can do that. Casting doubt upon those affairs of Al-Uluhiyyah. And similarly because throughout the ages the prophets and messengers, the issue their enemies always had with them was primarily upon the category of Al-Uluhiyyah. So he defined it as Al-Uluhiyyah. And of course all of the categories are linked together. It's not like they are separated. So just because he's mentioned only Al-Uluhiyyah, doesn't mean he's negating the other categories from here. They are included with it. And just to conclude the benefit on that section then, how are, how are the categories of Tawheed connected? So how is Al-Rububiyyah connected to Al-Uluhiyyah? And how is Al-Uluhiyyah connected to Al-Rububiyyah? So firstly, how is Al-Rububiyyah, the Lordship of Allah, connected to Al-Uluhiyyah, the worship of Allah? So the connection is Al-Istilzam, that it is a relationship of necessity. Al-Rububiyyah necessitates Tastelzim Al-Uluhiyyah. Why? Because if you believe in the Rububiyyah of Allah, meaning you believe Allah alone is the creator, and you believe Allah alone is the provider, and Allah alone is the sustainer. Allah alone is the one who gives life and death. Allah alone 
is the one who controls the universe. Allah alone is the one who decrees everything. If you believe all of that, all of those actions are done by Allah, only Allah alone, then it necessitates that you should surely then only worship Him alone. Because if you don't and you worship others, then upon your acknowledgement, you are worshipping others who you believe are not the creators of the universe, are not the ones who give life and death, not the ones who provide for us. You're worshipping others who you believe are not the ones who do those things. And how can that make sense? Therefore, if you believe in the rububiyyah of Allah, it necessitates you should believe and be upon the uluhiyyah. That's why in the Quran, there are many ayat that talk about the rububiyyah of Allah. Even though we said the biggest issue the enemies had against their prophets was not the rububiyyah, the lordship of Allah. It was actually the category of Al-Uluhiyyah, worshipping Allah alone. So why then in that case are there so many ayat in the Qur'an about the rububiyyah of Allah when all of the prophets and messengers, their enemies actually had a problem with them in Uluhiyyah, not rububiyyah. Anybody hands up? So? Okay, because the kuffar, they accepted rububiyyah. Which means upon what we've just said now, rububiyyah necessitates al-uluhiyyah. Yet the kuffar were not upon uluhiyyah. They accepted Allah is the creator, provider, sustainer. They accepted all of that. Yet still went and worshipped other deities. So now by mentioning all of these ayat about rububiyyah in the Qur'an, it is establishing an evidence against them. That look, you believe Allah is the creator. You believe Allah is the provider. You believe Allah is the one who gave life and death. You believe only Allah does all of this. And yet you are worshipping others. It is establishing the proof upon them. Hence all of those ayat about the rububiyyah are mentioned because they should have necessitated that they therefore worship Allah alone, but they did not. Hence all of those ayat become an evidence against them. The other way around, al-uluhiyyah, its connection to al-rububiyyah. Rububiyyah necessitated al-uluhiyyah. What about the other way? Al-Uluhiyya, the worship of Allah alone. What's its connection to Rububiyya? Hands up. Only a few hands this week. What's happened? Go on then. Is it in order to establish the worship properly? It? Okay. So, simply said, to explain it in a simple way, it is about the worship, it is about the establishment of the worship, but Al-Uluhiyyah basically, its relationship to Al-Rububiyyah is that Al-Uluhiyyah incorporates Al-Rububiyyah, includes Al-Rububiyyah. How come? Because if somebody believes in al-uluhiyyah, believes that they need to single out their worship to Allah alone, their dua, their prayer, their zakat, their fasting, their hajj, he believes all of his worship must be done sincerely and purely to Allah, believes in al-uluhiyyah. How has he got to the stage of believing in al-uluhiyyah? 
because he must have already understood and believed in Arububiya because that's what necessitated for him to be upon Al-Uluhiya. So if somebody is upon Al-Uluhiya, it is because they've already incorporated and accepted Arububiya. So the relationship of Al-Uluhiya to Arububiya, that Al-Uluhiya incorporates At-Tadammun, incorporates Arububiya to be on Al-Uluhiya. You've already gone through the stage of Arububiya. That's why you're singling out Allah with your worship now. Whereas the other way, if you're at the stage of Arububiya yet, then from that stage it should necessitate to be upon Al-Uluhiya. That's the connection they mentioned between Arububiya and Al-Uluhiya. So then moving along, uh, we mentioned that وَهُوَ دِينُ الرُّسُلِ الَّذِي أَرْسَلَهُمُ اللَّهُ أَرْسَلَهُمُ اللَّهُ بِهِ إِلَىٰ عِبَادِهِ That this religion of Tawheed is the religion that Allah sent all of the messengers with to His servants. All of them had the call to Tawheed. All of them were upon Tawheed. Abraham, Moses, Noah, Jesus, everyone. All of the messengers we believe in, they all called to the worship of Allah alone. فَأَوَّلُهُمْ نُوحٌ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ فَأَوَّلُهُمْ نُوحٌ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ The first of the messengers was Noah. Nuh alayhi salam. أَرْسَلَهُ اللَّهُ إِلَىٰ قَوْمِهِ لَمَّا غَلَوْ فِي الصَّالِحِينَ Allah sent him to his people when they began exaggerating in the righteous people. So we mentioned when Adam السلام, was created, he was created upon Tawheed. And then 10 generations went by and the shirk then began. That's where we left it off. So now we'll have a look at that story regarding how shirk first began. So at the time of the people of Nuh, Noah, السلام, 10 generations down now, there were at that time righteous people just like there had been in the 10 generations coming down. There were some righteous people in that era. Mentioned in the Quran, Wad, Suwa', Yaghuth, Ya'uq, Nasr, Names of righteous people who lived in and around that 10th generation. When these righteous and pious people died, and they all died close by to each other in time, in that 10th generation or thereabouts, when these righteous people all died, pious people that the community used to love, the community, the society used to respect and love those righteous and pious people. So they all died in a short period of time. And so the community, the society, the people were all left grieving the death of these uh, handful of righteous and pious people. They were left in a state of sorrow in a state of loss, in a state of grieving over the deaths of these pious people gone now. So then, the scholars they mention, Shaytan, for the first time in ten generations, saw an opening for himself. The Shaytan saw an opportunity to exploit the emotions of the people to exploit the state that they were in now in this grief at the loss of the righteous people they were grieving they were sad they were emotional the shaitan saw an opening for himself saw an opportunity so he came to the people and now those righteous ones have been buried they've been buried at the graveyards at a distance away from the villages, the shaitan came to the people. 
and reminded them of those righteous people. And the people had great love for them and they were still grieving for them. Shaitan suggested to them, you should go to the graves of those pious people where you buried them. Go to their graves. Look at the graves where you buried them so that it reminds you of them. And when it reminds you of them, you will be reminded of how pious they used to be and how righteous they used to be. And that will then help you and encourage you. So it will be good for you to go and visit their graves where you buried them to remember and reflect upon their piety to therefore encourage yourself. So the people obviously thought that's a good idea. So they went. They went to the graves of where they buried those righteous people and they reflected upon those righteous people and went back. No shirk, no shirk. Just went there, reflected and went back. The shaitan then said to them, but wait, when you go there and these graveyards were outside of the villages at the edges or somewhat of a distance away. The shaitan said, when you go there to the graves, don't just go and come back. When you go there, you want to really reflect upon the lives of these pious and righteous people. Stay there for a while. Spend some proper time there. Reflect and ponder. Stay there hours at a time. Do as we say now, i'tikaf at the graves. I'tikaf just means spending time in one fixed place. So the shaitan encouraged them to go to the graves and spend lengthy periods of time looking and reflecting and pondering. So the people began doing that. No shirk though. That isn't shirk. They went there, they sat there, they pondered, they reflected for lengthy periods of time and came back. No shirk. Then the shaitan with his next step and the scholars they say, look at how shaitan did this all in steps. The next step, he said to them, okay, look, you go out to the graveyards, it's a distance, then you spend your time there, then you come back. Why not just make some figurines, some pictures, something that represents those righteous people and put those figurines and pictures and things, representations of them in your villages, in your community halls, as we say now, the meeting places, the gathering places in your homes, put those representations of them that you make in your villages and gathering places. So that every time, every day, in and around, here and there, out and about, you see these representations of those righteous people, and you remember and reflect. And you don't have to go out to the graves every how many days you go out there. They'll be with you always. You'll see them everywhere. Their pictures, their images, their figurines, their representations. And you'll constantly be reminded of their piety. And that'll be good for you. So they did it. They made representations and figurines of those pious people. And they put them around their villages. That in of itself, not necessarily shirk yet. They've made representations and they put them around, but they haven't committed shirk in terms of now prostrating or making dua or anything to them. They've just put them there to just reflect. When they see them, they reflect upon their piety. So still no shirk in terms of shirk as we define it properly. Then, after time went by, Time went by and now these people have got these representations and figurines of those deceased individuals. They look at them, they reflect, they ponder. Time went by. Those people now, that generation died. Their children came, the next generations came. When those next generations came, 
and they didn't know what these representations are. Why had our forefathers put these things everywhere around the villages? What was the story behind them? These new youngsters, as we say now, the new generation, the new people didn't know. So then the shaitan came with his next step. He came to them and whispered to them and told them, these representations, these figurines, these pictures, modeling, whatever it was of the type, they were made by your forefathers because when there was a drought, they used to call upon them. When there was a drought, your forefathers used to call upon them. That's why they're everywhere in your villages and all over the place. They used to call upon them. They used to make dua to them. So now this new generation didn't know any better. They didn't know why their forefathers had these things and what they were and the righteous people. They didn't know any of that. They didn't know any better. So they fell into the whisperings of the shaitan and began calling upon those statues or those uh, representations and figurines. They began calling upon them, believing the whisperings of the shaitan that their forefathers had built them to call upon them. And that's where the shirk first began. When they began calling upon those idols, then that was now an act of worship being done to others besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who can tell us then what was the cause of that chain of events leading to shirk? That was a chain of events that led to the shirk finally occurring. In fact, let's mention the narration first, then you can tell us. The narration is of Ibn Abbas in Sahih al-Bukhari, where he said, هَذِهِ أَسْمَاءُ رِجَالٍ صَالِحِينَ مِنْ قَوْمِ نُوحِ فَلَمَّا هَلَكُوا أَوْحَ الشَّيْطَانُ إِلَىٰ قَوْمِهِمْ أَنْ أَنْصِبُوا إِلَىٰ مَجَالِسِهِمْ أَلَّتِي كَانُوا يَجْلِسُونَ فِيهَا أَنْصَابًا he said that these are the names of righteous men. Wad, Nasr. They are the names of righteous men from the people of Nuh, the generation of people at that time. But when they died, those righteous people, this is the hadith in Bukhari now. When those righteous people died, Shaitan whispered to their people, the, the society at the time, Make representations of them, make figures of them and put them in your places where you sit. And then name those idols by the names of the righteous people. Give them the same names as what the righteous people were actually called, so that they are full on representations of them. So they did that. But they didn't worship them. Until when those people then that generation died, and knowledge was forgotten, the following generations no longer knew why their forefathers had these statues and things. Knowledge was lost. Then when knowledge was lost, then when the knowledge was lost, they began to be worshipped. That's the narration highlighting the story we've just mentioned. So now, there was a chain of events. What was the root and the cause from the beginning of the chain that led to that shirk in the end? Because shaitan could not, and, uh, could not convince the people to immediately commit shirk. Why not? It was too obvious because for 10 generations they had all been upon Tawheed. 10 generations, a thousand years, Tawheed, Tawheed. Shaitan wasn't going to just come now and suddenly overnight make them commit shirk. Wasn't going to be possible. 
So there was a chain of events and the scholars they say look at how shaitan was patient. Slowly one step at a time building his plot. Chain of events leading to the shirk and the core of it was love. Love, what do you mean? Love of the ancestors. But that's allowed. You're not allowed to love your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather. The thing that following them. Following them. If your grandfathers were ulama, alhamdulillah, we'll all follow them. <laughs> so we need something more detailed than even that. It was, a, you're right what you're saying, just a bit more detail on how to say it, that they exaggerated in their love for them. They were excessive in their love for them. Exaggeration and excessiveness led to that. That's why Islam prohibits exaggeration and excessiveness in affairs. Moderation, not exaggeration and excessiveness. Those people loved those righteous people so much that the shaitan slowly managed to convince them to make statues of them and name them by the name of those pious people because of their excessiveness in how much love they had for those pious people. That wulu, that excessiveness is what led that chain of events to finally come to shirk occurring. So that is the story of how shirk first began. And insha'Allah ta'ala, I don't think anybody's ever going to forget that now. So then, وَآخِرُ الرُّسُلِ The last of the messengers was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَهُوَ الَّذِي كَسَّرَ صُوَرَهَا أُولَئِ الصَّالِحِينَ The final messenger then, throughout history from Noah, Messengers came, prophets came. The last of them in the end was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The seal of the prophets, Khatamun Nabiyyin, la nabiyya ba'di. He said, there is no prophet after me. He is the seal of the prophets. But if he is the last of the prophets and the seal of the prophets, and there is no other prophet to come after him. Then what about Isa, Jesus, coming back at the end of time? We believe, it is our belief as Muslims that Jesus will come back at the end of time. Isa alayhi salam will come back at the end of time. But if Muhammad is the final messenger, how does that work? How do we create harmony in that understanding? Hands. So when Isa alayhi salam returns, he will follow the path of Muhammad sallallahu He will follow the Sharia of Muhammad. And he was also sent before, all of those together. So Isa alayhi salam, Jesus, will come back at the end of time. And as some of the narrations they mention, when he was taken, he was how many years old? 33. And when he returns, he will remain another 7 to make 40. So when he comes back at the end of time, he will not rule by the revelation that he was given. He will now rule by this sharia of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So in that sense, he's not a new prophet or messenger. He is coming to rule by and be under the sharia of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the final revelation. And on top of that, he was sent as a messenger before Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam initially anyway. It's not like he was sent as a new messenger initially and originally afterwards. But the key thing is he will follow the sharia of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He will rule by this sharia, not by the sharia that he was originally given. One other side issue that comes up here. Isa alayhi salam, 
met the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam when? On the night of ascension. The night of ascension, when the Prophet ﷺ was taken up to the heavens that night, he came across the Prophets and Messengers and he came across Isa salam uh, in the prayer. So now, uh, a side issue, the, the uh, uh, topic comes up regarding companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Isa salam oh firstly, what is a companion of the Prophet who is a Sahabi? Somebody who met the Prophet ﷺ whilst at the time believing in him upon Iman and died upon Islam even if in between maybe apostasy from a few small examples maybe occurred. Isa ﷺ met the Prophet ﷺ. At the time of meeting him he was a believer of course. And he will, we know, die as a believer. Therefore, is Isa alayhi salam considered a sahabi, a companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam? Hands up. Go on. Yeah, because? So you're saying yes, because the conditions and the criteria are all met. He met the Prophet, believed in him at the time, will die upon Islam, we know. So yes, because all the criteria meets. Anybody else with any answers? No. No? Why not? Because? So they all Sahaba then. <laughs> Why not then? Anybody else? No, there's no condition of that. Nobody's ever mentioned any type of condition like that. Anybody else? Because that would be taking status away from him if anything. So you're saying it's not something respectful to be a companion? <laughs> Correct. Isa alayhi salam, this is a side point. It's one of those where you can't help but digress. Isa alayhi salam, the discussion of him being a companion, the criteria meets. The criteria meets to be a companion. But the issue is a non-issue. It's a non-existent issue. Because Isa alayhi salam already has a status higher than the status of companionship. He's already higher than the level of being a companion. So it's a non-issue, a non-conversation, a non-starter to talk about Isa alayhi salam being a companion. You don't need to. He's already elevated above the station of companionship. He is a messenger, so it's not even a topic. The criteria meets, but it's not a topic and it's not something which is mentioned or that you say he was a companion. Why? He's a messenger and not just a messenger, from the best of the messengers. So that isn't something that is a topic. It's not a topic. He is better than the companions anyway. So Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam was the final messenger to be sent. And the author mentions here, وَآخِرُ الرُّسُلِ مُحَمَّدٌ صَلَّى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمُ وَهُوَ الَّذِي كَسَّرَ سُوَرَ هَأُولَئِ الصَّالِحِينَ And he is the one who destroyed the idols of those righteous people. Meaning, there is a story behind this as well. Those idols that were then made at that time when shaitan convinced them just make idols, make figurines and statues and put them in your places. So when you see them, you'll remember them. They were made. They made those statues then. Those statues that they made, when the floods came at the time of Nuh alayhi salam, 
When the people of Noah, they disbelieved the majority of them, so the punishment of Allah came and the floods they came. How the water, it opened up from the clouds and it opened up from the ground and all of the waters they met and they made floods higher than the mountains. The kuffar were destroyed. Those idols, what happened to them? They were washed away in the floods. The idols, they were washed away in the floods. When the flood waters finally receded, when the flood waters finished, then the ground became apparent again. Those idols then settled into the ground. And over time then, they were buried by sand and stone and everything coming on top of them. They were buried in under the ground. Geographically where? In what is modern day Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. In the beaches of Jeddah, Jeddah, Jeddah. On those beaches is where those idols landed and just went into the soil and were buried there after the floods finished. And they remained there, buried underground. After the floods finished and the soil settled, they were left buried underground there. And they remained, and they remained, and they remained. Up until the time of the final messenger, Muhammad wasallam. There was a man by the name of... Amr huh? ibn Luhay al-Khuza'i. This man, the shaitan, whispered to him. He was a man, they say, was affected and influenced by the idol worship. He'd been to Sham and other places, and he'd seen the mushrikun and what they do. He was influenced by those affairs. And the shaitan whispered to him, go to the location, the beaches of Jeddah, as we now know them to be. Go there and dig up. He went and dug up and found those original idols from the time of Noah. And shaitan whispered to him, go and spread these amongst the Arabs. One here, one idol there, one idol in that land. Spread them to the Arabs that they be worshipped. And so he did. Then the Prophet Muhammad was sent as a prophet, as a messenger. Then we know the hijrah happened. All of the Muslims, the Prophet, everybody had to leave Mecca and go to Medina because of the oppression of the kuffar. Then eight years later, after they migrated to Medina, there were enough Muslims now, they came back to reclaim Mecca. They came back, and that's the year, the conquering of Mecca. So when they came back and they conquered Mecca in the eighth year of Hijri, that's the year then when they entered and when they got to the Kaaba, there were hundreds of idols. The Mushrikun had, whilst they were in control of Mecca, they had hundreds of idols around the Kaaba. In some narrations, 360 idols in and around the Kaaba, in the Kaaba, around the Kaaba. So when the conquering of Mecca occurred, the Prophet ﷺ, it's mentioned in the seerah with his spear, was breaking those idols and reciting, Ja al Truth has come and falsehood is destroyed and gone. So that's when all the idols were destroyed and that's when these five idols were also destroyed. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan said, look at the impact of shirk. These idols came from the time of the first messenger. And they remained in existence and were only destroyed at the time of the last messenger. The long effects of shirk. So they were destroyed then at that time uh, when the conquering of Mecca occurred. And we already spoke about the story of Khalid ibn Walid and the trees and that being destroyed. Allah, Al-Uzza, Manat, all those idols and everything was then destroyed at the conquering of Mecca. Then, the next section of the book, Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab is now going to talk about the da'wah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So far in that introduction, he's built it up, explained how mankind originally was, 
how through the generations slowly then the shirk appeared, how those idols were destroyed with the sending of the final messenger. Now he's going to talk about the da'wah of the final messenger. The da'wah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that's what we'll talk about then from next week. The da'wah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what he called them to and who were these people that he was sent to? What were they like at that time? What were the disbelievers like? The Quraysh. What were they like? What were they upon? What was their religion? What was the background to all of it when the messenger was sent and the da'wah began? That is what we'll begin with insha'Allah ta'ala from next week. And we'll conclude upon that for today. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين